0: My name is Naman, I'm one of the pastors here, and we'll be preaching God's word tonight. Um, If you're just joining us, uh, if this is your first Sunday, we've been starting a new sermon series through the book of Acts, Um, and we're here in the middle part of of chapter two. Last week, Dave uh, preached on the Pentecost, this supernatural act of God's Holy Spirit to come down to empower his church, empower his apostles to bestow upon them these spiritual gifts, these extraordinary spiritual gifts. And towards the end of that narrative, you had your typical naysayers and critics who began to say, maybe they're drunk with wine, and and Dave preached through the beginning part of Peter's sermon as he's addressing this accusation and quoting part of the, the book of Joel that we read earlier in parts of our confession. So... He's preached through that part of chapter 2, and we're landing here in the middle part of his sermon um, in chapter 2. So I'll read it for us, and as is custom here, if you would respond with thanks at the end. So from Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, for, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us real quickly. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Before moving to Pittsburgh, I had the opportunity to spend some time uh, in Boston. And and a part of my role in in the church up there was to aid uh, this effort to host conferences for the Gospel Coalition. They had regional chapters and they had one in New England. And I had the privilege of helping host some of these conferences And as as we were putting together some of these seminars and these workshops that were happening, I began to see a common trend and a theme through all of them. And just by looking at the title of these workshops, you see um, gospel DNA, gospel-centric preaching, uh, gospel-shaped evangelism, gospel-shaped Bible studies, gospel-shaped hospitality. And I kid you not, one time I saw gospel-shaped coffee-making right this idea of trying to uh, envelop a, a ministry with a, in a cafe style but nevertheless over the over the course of my time there i began to take the word gospel and it began to lose a little bit of, it, bit of its significance for me everything around me seemed to be gospel this gospel centric that gospel shaped and i began to ask myself what what is the gospel What does it mean to have a gospel-shaped ministry or even gospel DNA? And in uh, some evangelistic circles, it may be tempting to throw around that word a lot. And I bring that up because tonight's passage, this this narrative here in Acts, is functionally the first gospel sermon preached in the New Testament. If you consider what had just happened with Jesus' resurrection, he spends the 40 days with his disciples and then he ascends into the heavens and then the Holy Spirit comes down to empower his apostles. This is the first sermon, as, as Peter is preaching, telling people about the gospel, about who Jesus was, what he did, how he died and how he rose again. Uh, certainly in response to these critics, but an opportunity to share the gospel. And it was fitting for me to kind of rehash and re-enliven myself to the, the basic and true essence of to what the gospel is. And so we'll look at this in very two simple ways. What is the gospel, simply put? And secondly, how do we respond? What is the gospel and how do we respond? <clears throat> the gospel or the, the literal word here in the Greek, uh, the gospel actually just means good news. We may have heard this before the good news, preaching the good news of Jesus. And so, when we ask ourselves the question, what is the gospel? And we see Peter preaching it here. We can say that primarily, the gospel is a proclamation and not a prescription. The gospel is a proclamation and not a prescription. Because notice. How the thrust of this entire passage that I just read, the thrust of Peter's message is to declare what had already been done. To declare something that has already happened and not something that still had yet to be done by the listeners. The gospel is a proclamation of something that has already ha- happened, not a prescription for people to do something else. His message, Peter's message here is not a how-to manual of, of how to be a good first-century Christian or a motivational speech to inspire his peers towards morality, but he goes to great lengths to proclaim who Jesus was, what he did, and what that means for them. In fact, he, he buys in a little bit of their own culpability into why Jesus had to die. He, he he repeats over and over again that he died by your hands, he was crucified by your hands. And then he says, and he gives the ultimate hope that by loosing the pangs of death, by conquering death itself, Jesus rose from the grave. Peter is proclaiming what has already happened. And so what we learn about this then as even modern listeners is to say the gospel primarily is not about us. The gospel is not about you. That when I was thinking about these workshops, how do I be a better evangelist or preacher? How do we have a better posture for hospitality? I was thinking about how to equip and empower myself and these other attenders, which is not a bad thing. But when we're thinking about the gospel, when we're reflecting on what the gospel is, it's not about us. If we believe that the gospel is this good news that is proclaimed to us, we have to believe that this is a work that has been done outside of us, on our behalf. That somebody else did this good news, this work. That at the end of the day, we had no part in making this happen. We had no part in making the gospel actually happen. In fact, Peter says we actually had part in in causing pain and death and brokenness instead. How we choose to live our lives today, right now, actually has no bearing on this proclamation of the gospel. If you choose to live your life differently, it doesn't change the outcome of what already happened the gospel is wholly dependent on god on what he graciously and willingly before the beginning of time chose to initiate chose to carry out chose to execute and follow through on for purely our benefit and his glory that the gospel is about god the gospel is about jesus it is this proclamation of something that has already happened Outside of us, and we are here to listen to that good news, hopefully every Sunday, every day of our lives. Back on August 14th, 1945, I don't know that anybody was alive. I know that somebody's 77th birthday today, but quite doesn't make that cut. But on August 14th, 1945, President Truman was waiting until 7 p.m. Eastern Time to be able to proclaim the news with the rest of the Allies that Japan had agreed to unconditionally surrender in World War II. So he's waiting to make this monumental announcement of uh, a huge victory in World War II. And after he does so, the celebration is immediate and spontaneous and enthusiastic and elation. There was a reported 2 million people who flooded Times Square in New York to celebrate to sing, there was paper confetti everywhere, there were conga lines, there was spontaneous kissing happening and you can begin to see why the baby boomer generation happened, right? (coughs) There was half a million people in the crowded downtown Chicago area where a man climbed the ladder to light a 18-foot victory candle that it took him three months to make. People were celebrating for days on end because of this news that they had heard. The deadliest and most destructive war in history, known simply to those who were living in that generation as just the war, the war, was finally beginning to come to an end. Now you can understand in that illustration that the people who were at home actually had probably nothing to do with the outcome of that war. They weren't on the front lines. They weren't a part of the military strategy. Maybe they bought some war bonds to assist in the effort. But they had nothing to do with the outcome of of why that good news was proclaimed to them. And yet, they still celebrated. Because the reality of their lives had vastly changed. Soldiers who were in a boat on their way to Japan to prepare for the mainland invasion could now turn back and go home. Fathers and uncles and brothers and sons would be returned home because now the good news was proclaimed to say the war is over. The people at home had nothing to do with this happening, and yet they get to celebrate days on end. And the headlines on August 15th was one word, peace. And they celebrated that. Now this for us, It's much like the gospel. We had nothing to do with the reality that sin was was captivated, that death was destroyed itself, that God chose to come to live life on this earth, a perfect life, died on our behalf so that we might have new life in him, that this broken relationship that we created with God has been restored. We had nothing to do with any of that restoration, and yet we get to celebrate because this good news has been proclaimed to us. That's the gospel. We celebrate because a life altering work has had has been done outside of us on our behalf. Something that will change anything and everything about us. So I ask you, I ask myself, how does this change the perspective your perspective of the gospel? What are things or what are ways in which we try to change or differ the gospel outcome in our own lives or try to use the gospel as a tool, as a means for changing ourselves when we ourselves actually have nothing to do with it? How can we better grasp the reality that this is a work that has been accomplished for us on our behalf by God himself? Peter himself also says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What he's saying here is that in God's sovereignty, in his plan way before we were even born, he knew that people would betray and kill and crucify Jesus. Yet it was through these means that we get, still get to see renewal and restoration and new life. And what does that tell us? That even in the midst of our mistakes, even in the midst of our brokenness, our sins, our active ways that we functionally kill this relationship with God on an everyday basis, even in spite of those things, the gospel is still proclaimed to us that even if this is the first time you're hearing the gospel and you're saying, well, I think I'm too far beyond that kind of salvation, that kind of restoration, know that God knew intimately in his sovereignty all of your mistakes, the ones that you've already made, certainly the ones you will make, and that in spite of those things, the gospel is still proclaimed that this life-altering work still happens. God is that gracious. God is that all Knowing, And so, secondly, then, how do we respond? We see throughout the book of Acts, uh, this is obviously the Acts of the Apostles. So it's this recording of church history, of early church history of the Apostles. Peter, of Paul, Silas, Barnabas, of all of these brothers who went before us to engage in gospel ministry, of preaching the gospel, of sharing about Jesus. And the one common denominator in on all of these instances where these brothers are are sharing the gospel and doing this ministry is that there's always a response. Our response that we saw tonight right after Pentecost, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now it's by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that 3,000 people, they started with the chapter before, they started with just 120 people. But after days of preaching this gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people were cut to the heart, that they were convicted, that they felt the remorse of their sin, but decided to turn away from their sin, decided to commit themselves to this ministry, to this truth, to this proclamation that has been made. Unfortunately, throughout the book of Acts, that's not always the case. In other instances, as we go through the rest of the book, we'll see indifference. We'll see questions and doubt. We'll see outright uh, rioting and anger and persecution. But the common denominator is that there's always a response. We can't hear the gospel and not respond. And believe it or not, all of you are here tonight in a way, responding to the gospel. Maybe you were invited to come and hear the gospel. Maybe you've been hearing the gospel for a long time. But in one way, shape, or form, there's always a response to it. Peter's response to these brothers asking, How do we respond to this? is simply put repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There again, Peter emphasizes that this is a work that is done outside of them. Even in their own salvation and hearing and responding to the gospel, the gift will be given to them. That is, it is wholly a work of God and by the power of his spirit that he is changing hearts, cutting their hearts, causing them to repent and to turn. And so we still have that same response, that same opportunity before us tonight, even right now, to respond to the gospel. What are ways that you have heard the gospel either preached from the pulpit, either shared with you on the street or with friends? And how do we respond? There's a common saying um, that you may have heard before it says, Church is better off viewed not as a museum for saints but as a hospital for sinners. And what this quote is trying to say is that oftentimes when we come to church, it's a big temptation for us to come and, and treat this building or treat this act of worship or engagement with other people as we would a museum where we want to curate it as present uh, a very presentable version of ourselves as though we're on display as though we are the exhibits of, of Jesus and, and the work that he's doing in our lives. So it's, it's this temptation to say, I have to put my best foot forward and I have to present a, a, a acceptable version of myself. And the quote continues on to say, rather than viewing church like that, it's better to, to view a church as a hospital for sinners, as a place where people understand their needs, their discrepancies, their differences... And to know that they need help. I'll take that a step further and to say, not just a hospital for sinners, but a morgue or a cemetery. That people who were already spiritually dead, who had no business to generate their own healing or well being, but church is a place where in that death, new life springs forth because of what Jesus has done for us. And so as we respond, this, as we engage in fellowship and worship together here at the evening service, at the morning service, in our community groups, in these various events that we'll have throughout the year, throughout the semester, don't feel the pressure to come curated, uh, to come putting the best version of yourself. Um, And it's tempting to walk away from that and go home and say, Pastor Naman says I don't have to take a shower, but that's, that's not what I'm saying here, but As we engage in these ministries, it's tempting. And functionally, I'll give an example. Oftentimes, I like to ask for prayer after something bad has already happened and has been resolved. I have a very hard time being vulnerable in those moments that something is actually happening to say, I need prayer for this. And I I don't really know what's going to happen. It's more tempting to say, I need prayer for this because I want to praise God to say this happened, but I figured it out. We, we processed it, we res- we've resolved it, and this is what I learned from it, right? That's my own temptation. It's to put, put this version of myself to say, you know, I have it all figured out. But as we come to church, as you engage in these conversations, as you uh, take part in Bible study or going out to coffee or lunch with a fellow brother and sister, don't feel that temptation to do that, to practice this vulnerability of saying, <laughs> I need Jesus. I need the gospel proclaimed to me every day. And we, in turn, are the hands and feet of Christ to one another. That The biggest blessing that, that we've received as a church, that I personally received as a pastor, is being able to say that I saw more of Jesus because of the ways that I've interacted with you all because of these individual conversations that I've had, because of these big events that we've had, I've seen more and the power of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing, that I can continue to proclaim his goodness, to proclaim these are the things that God is doing. Not because of the fact that we're gifted, beautiful, great people, but that in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our vulnerability, that God can still use us, that God calls us to repent away from this temptation or pursuing whatever it is that we say, I think I love this more than God. And to see God coming to us, whispering or loudly proclaiming the good news that Jesus came even when we were still enemies and he saw you wherever you are in your condition. And he says, I still choose you. I still chose to die for you, and I still chose to rise again from the dead to show you that that very sin that you struggle with has no power over you. That this love for me is way better, that is magnified much more than this temptation that you have. And hopefully this is a church, this is a community that can be that. We're not perfect. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of... Messy and hard and time-consuming and draining situations and conversations. But it's precisely in those moments that we hear the gospel proclaimed. To know that I, I can't do this on my own. It has to be a work done outside of us. So this happened certainly in the early church. Certainly in the very first instance of the gospel being proclaimed. And that's our hope and prayer that as you continue to come and be engaged in our church that you would hear the gospel that we would live gospel-shaped lives because we know what the gospel is and what it means for us. So let's pray together.